But where am I going to look? They tell me that love is blind. I really need a girl like an open book to read between the lines. Welcome, one and all, to Backtracks, Aerosmith Revisited. My name is Corey Mercer, joined as always by the sexiest man in podcasting, Scotty Too Hotty, Scott Haskin. How are you doing, Scott? Corey, I'm doing great, man. How are you? Man, I tell you, I get so depressed when we get on these calls and I see all the ladies' underwear behind you and like there's usually <laughs> hot women walking around in the background from a night of of just horrid whatever. And, and my mind goes, I, I just, I'm, I'm just jealous. I, I wish I had your life, my friend. Come, come out and visit Debauchery Central anytime you like. <laughs> I would love to, but I'm going to bring a friend with me because I can't imagine going anywhere without my good buddy from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, everybody's favorite transplanted Brit. It's Kevin Brown. Kevin Brown, welcome back to the show, my friend. Hey, Corey. How's it going, Scott? Doing great, buddy. How are so, you? I'm, I'm good. So if you're the sexiest man in podcasting and Corey's the hardest working man in podcasting, I don't know where that leaves me. The most so you're the shortest. man in podcast. The shortest. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. Well, you're just the man in podcasting. The Hobbit. <laughs> Hobbit. Short, hairy feet. <laughs> Before we get right into it, Kevin Brown, we got to tell the folks uh, about your other shows. Of course, you're a, a proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network. You're doing three shows on this damn network. Maybe tell us about them. Let's start uh, with, with the flagship show, the one that started it all, the Tom Petty Project. Yeah, that's my podcast where I'm going through the entire Tom Petty catalog, song by song, album, uh, song by song, album by album. And then I have conversations with musicians, fans, and different people connected with Tom in some way along the way. Um, both of you, obviously, have been a, a guest on the show, which was a lot of fun. Um, and I'm up to Full Moon Fever already. I'm on side two of Full Moon Fever, which is the the eighth album, the halfway point in the catalog. Now, the track list and the track count on the albums moving forward gets a bit longer, but still, it's weird to be halfway through the, the discography at this point. And a full moon fever, when I was on your show, I think I listed that as my uh, my all-time favorite I'm Tom Petty sure record. Does. I also thought it was pretty brave that you invited uh, Scott Haskett on your show, and he doesn't even like Tom Petty. <laughs> I had a great time anyway. We actually had a hell of a conversation. We did. We did. I'm still editing the uh, the uh, <laughs> the uh, outtakes, what we're going to call it, the extra content from that, because we talked about so much stuff, man. It was great. Yeah. Like two months later, you're still probably, you poor guy. Still pulling stuff out, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Podcasting with Scott Haskin. He says, yeah, we're going to do an album review, and four and a half hours later, you're punch drunk, and you're wondering what the fuck you've been doing for the last half day. It's good stuff. Well, we, it's good fun. We, we get good stuff out of it, though. There you go. Uh, Kevin Brown, you do a second show uh, with the guy who just celebrated a birthday not that long ago, Mr. Randy Woods. Tell us about that. The Cardinal, Mr. Woods, yes. He um, he and I do Seaside Pod Review, which is a Queen podcast. And for that one, we stole a an excellent format from one of your shows um, and the podcast will rock where we spin a wheel. And we just talk about a random Queen song that we have no prep for. We have no way to prep for, which makes it fun. And then on top of that, the nice thing is that Randy is a... Sort of a greatest hits fan, I would say, more or less. And I'm more of a catalog fan that Queen's my band, sort of thing. And so it's a good dynamic there where I'm sort of introducing him to some songs that he's just never heard and watching him react to those in real time. And I know, Scott, you've had the same experience on this show where there's some songs in the Aerosmith catalog that you don't know. So it's really nice when you're a fan to see someone hear, hear a song for the first time, right? It's a pretty cool thing to be able to do. Kevin, refresh my memory. Who downvoted 39? Was that the the diehard Queen fan or the Greatest Hits fan who did that? Here we go. Here we go. This is never, ever going to leave me. I'm, I'm going to be nope. carrying this in my, guess on my tombstone, this fucking thing. It was a marginal downvote, and I've heard nothing but shit about it across all platforms on all my podcasts. I can't get away from this. You I'm bringing it up when we record podcasts. Ultimate Catalog Clash, too. Yeah. Start more <laughs> podcasts so you can hear about it some more. Yeah. 
And finally, uh, I already kind of kind of ruined the surprise. Ultimate Catalog Clash. Maybe tell the folks about that. So that's our uh, podcast, Corey, that we're looking at one artist per season. Um, and each episode covers one side of an album. We've got a little rating system where we rate music, lyrics, and production. Um, and eventually, once we've done both sides of the album, we come up with a score out of 100. And our aim is to find out which is the best album in that artist's catalog. And for season one, we're doing Phil Collins' era Genesis. And we've also roped your co-host tonight, Scott Askin, into helping us out because we don't know who's voted for which album we think is going to be best. And then whoever guesses correctly, though, the highest rated album gets to pick the next artist for next season. So it's going to be a lot of fun to wrap that one up and get Scott's thoughts on why I'm wrong on Snowbound. Well, you you didn't just rope me into it. Uh, You know, on uh, last week's episode, you guys pushed me even further and said, I'm responsible for figuring out the tiebreaker. (laughs) (laughs) So we, we do uh, we do have different tiebreakers in mind. I, I believe we sent you one. We we got to send you another one. I don't think I've done mine yet, but we thought, well, what if the first tiebreaker doesn't decide it? We we have a second tiebreaker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've only received one from you guys so far, okay. um, but I've really been enjoying the show. I think it's a great idea. It's a different take, you know, really like doing a, a dive into a section of a band and really analyzing it, just playing specific parts of note. Um, otherwise, the show would be like, you know, six hours long, like mm-hmm. my show is. And uh, it's, it's just a great way to get two different perspectives and really dig into a band. Oh, what I found so far, the, the, the fun thing is with this one is, and I don't know, Corey, if you've been thinking about this, a lot of our ratings end up being very similar for a mm-hmm. side of an album. So, it's, you know, each side we rate out of 25 total. We're very close all the time, but it's not always the same songs that we're that we're sort of bumping up, right? So at, coming at it from those two different sides, we're tending to average each, each other out, which is kind of neat. I didn't wasn't expecting that necessarily. Yeah, I, I wasn't expecting that at all either. Now that we're getting into the stuff that I'm more familiar with, starting with uh, Genesis self-titled in 83, going into Invisible Touch and We Can't Dance, that's kind of my era uh, of Phil Collins' uh, yeah. era Genesis. So really curious to see how those ones shakes out but i tell you I, i've really enjoyed the experiment thus far because a lot of this the first th- a few albums were first time listens for me mm-hmm. and some stuff i could at least appreciate musically how difficult it is and some of it i just want to punch tony Banks straight in the dick <laughs> but <laughs> well the other thing that, that's really interesting about it is how in some ways you guys are opposite like like you know Corey, you're not a prog rock guy and a lot of older genesis was a lot more progressive you're more the commercial guy and i'm surprised how how high your ratings have been considering that kevin you're more the prog guy so i kind of expected your ratings to be about where they are and i'll be curious to see as you get into the more you know radio friendly stuff where you're at but uh yeah i've been really surprised at, at how you guys have rated so far it's been an interesting experiment, and one I'm very uh, glad to be taking on with my good friend Kevin Brown. It's been a lot of fun. Ultimate Catalog Clash. Uh, go check out that show. It's funny, Kevin, you mentioned uh, uh, the format with the wheel and all that. Uh, you always kind of said, ah, you know, Corey came up with that. I, I lifted my format from Pot of Thunder. They had a randomizer. Uh, usually it was the yeah. the Bozo Pewter from the old uh, Bozo the Clown show. Uh, I just introduced a wheel, and now I think last count, there's like eight or nine podcasts doing a wheel. Uh, there, I just heard there's a Whitney Houston uh, podcast with the wheel that, that they credit to, to us getting the idea from and now our good friend Chaz is going to do a rush show where yeah. they're going to put rush songs on a wheel so you know what I'm kind of coming away to your way of thinking a lot of people are, are ripping me off right now 
it, it's homage. It's homage, Corey. They're, you know, yeah. we're all <laughs> worshipping at the altar of the uh, the hardest working man in podcasting at the CMPU. That's you know, you're at the heart of it all. I well, love like, though that you started doing some stuff on your show that you kind of lifted from the Sean Geek show, and I kind of picked up on it when I heard all these different clips. Like Sean does that, yeah. And then you <laughs> you you cop to that. Oh yeah, I stole that from Sean Geek Fast Red podcast. Like yeah, you did. Not an original thought in my head. <laughs> it's like they used to say in the 70s, it's not a ripoff, it's an inspiration. There you go. It's, it's like the blues, a, right? Get around, yeah, it's how you get around copyright. Nobody's <laughs> ripping me off, and uh, I, I'm going to have to start a trend now. I'll tell you what, speaking of the blues, uh, we cover a pretty good blues band on this year podcast right here. Backtracks, Aerosmith Revisited. And um, we've been having a good run of luck here, uh, Scott Haskin. We've been putting a lot of stuff uh, on the wheel. Uh, last week uh, didn't quite make it, but um, we knew Kevin would come in with a murderer's row on his dice. Let's just roll through the songs here, folks, what Kevin put on the dice here tonight. We have F-I-N-E Fine from Pump, Big Ten Inch Record from Toys in the Attic, Monkey on My Back from Pump, Toys in the Attic from Toys in the Attic, Simaria from Permanent Vacation, and Fallen Angels from Nine Lives. Wow, there's some great tracks on there, my friend. Tell us, Kevin, what, what were you thinking when you picked these six here tonight? Well, Pump was, I think, like most people, or a lot of people my age, Pump was my introduction to Aerosmith because that's when they really hit, you know, MTV and Much Music and all those platforms. VH, VH1, I think, was even, was that? Was that Canada? Was VH1? Or which one was? Yeah. Was that England? I don't remember. Well, VH1 was, uh, was America. Okay, so I, I, so I just remember sort of seeing, you know, Loving an Elevator and thinking, who is this fucking guy with the mouth and the hair and the attitude and the bangles and the scarves? I was just kind of mesmerized by this the spectacle of Steven Tyler more than anything. And then started getting into him a little bit and listening to Pump, and then you get, you know, F.I.N.E. Finds on there and Monkey on My Back, and there's just so many great songs on that album. And so then I started going back and, again, Permanent Vacation, what a record and then you start digging into the deep cuts and then you find out walk this way oh okay well that was an old song that they did so then you go back and listen to that so pump was sort of that that entry point for me so i've always loved pump so monkey on my back and f-i-n-e i think are two standout um i was gonna call them deep cuts but i think f-i-n-e was released as a single i believe somewhere as i was digging around and looking i think i might be wrong on that but i think it was it was actually uh, it actually charted on the U.S. rock charts, hit number fourteen. Yeah, so so again, I mean, not a, not something you would actually expect to be a single because that's a really quite a raunchy lyric, you know, for mainstream radio. Um, then yeah, so permanent vacation again, front to back, and I know that Scott, it's if not your favorite, one of your favorite Aerosmith records, one of mine too. I think production wise, songwriting wise, delivery wise, it's the band at their peak. You know, permanent vacation, pump, uh, get a grip. That to me is Aerosmith, and that 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 sort of you know post-drug era that's them at their peak and they never got better than that um and they included i did include though um fallen angels from nine lives because i think that's the last i'm, I'm going to put this on record as saying i think that's the last good song that aerosmith wrote as a band i think because they did you know they did the covers album and they did some stuff after that, and just just push players a couple of decent tracks like that for me but after that it just kind of that was the beginning of the the creek started around there it's like i think they run out of ideas now for me you know so that latest stuff i don't dig so i tried to load it up with stuff up to that point but again toys in the attic is i don't know might be my favorite aerosmith record i don't know it depends what day you ask me on so i'd have two on there as well so that's excellent i find i have to split it into eras right so my favorite 70s record is rocks my favorite uh you know 
second era Aerosmith. Probably has, geez, God, it changes all the time. It flips between permanent vacation, pump, and get a grip. Yeah. I just, I love those records so much. Right now, I got to say, it's probably permanent vacation because as we're going through this show here, Scott, there's not a bad track on that record. Like, we've covered a lot of those songs already. Mm-hmm. And it, it is gold, top to bottom. Like, I forgot how much I loved Hard Stun Time until yeah. John Matola brought it on the on the show. It was like, oh, man, what a killer fucking way to kick off. Now, this is such a great song. And I don't so, know, Scott. I, I don't, I don't know, Scott. If you, knew, if you knew this, if you're aware, this is a really good instrumental on Permanent Vacation. Is there? I don't yeah, think so. I always stop it. Album, I, I no, I, I stop was. right after I hear I'm down. <laughs> that, that That's where the album ends. Well, you know, Corey, that we only have four songs left to cover on Permanent Vacation, and then we're, wow. we're done with it. That might be our yeah. first album that we complete. Who knows? We, we keep throwing permanent vacation songs on the dice uh, for, for that reason, just because they're, they're so great. Uh, Samurai is definitely probably maybe the deepest cut, uh, mm-hmm. maybe other than like St. John, which we haven't covered yet. When you're talking deep cuts off that record. Those are probably the two. But uh, have we? what else uh, do we have left on that one? We have Angel. Uh, Angel and Dude Looks Like a Lady. Oh yeah, the the big one, right? The the two big so, ones we haven't so done. So two yeah. hits and and two deeper tracks. All right. Well, uh, Scott, um, out of those six, uh, you're familiar with a lot of them. Which one are you hoping to roll here tonight? You know, uh, and now I really kind of want to hear a permanent vacation song, but <laughs> uh, I'll go with. Uh, so so out of the six, there's actually two I don't know. So I'll go with. Uh, you know, I dated a fallen angel, so I'll go with F I N E fine. Oh, perfect. And, of course, F-I-N-E fine uh, stands for fucked up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. Uh, all things you could uh, say to describe Scott Haskins. So that's aptly chosen there, my friend. Uh, how about you, Kevin Brown? Uh, what are you hoping to hear tonight? Simaraya. Oh, we're going right I back mean, to, yeah, permanent vacation. Yeah, Why I, not? I just, eh? Again, as I was, I went through and listened to the songs again today, just to, I mean, not that I needed to refresh my memory on these, but just to listen to them. So I've got sort of, okay, that I like that little. I forgot that that bit comes in here, or the cowbell comes in here, or whatever it might be. And Simurai is just, because that one wasn't released as a single, and I think it's as strong as anything on that album. I really do. Like, it's just a brilliant, brilliant piece of music. It's a great vocal. Love the lyric. Everything about it. So, yeah. But Perfect. I'm not going to be mad at anything that comes up, right? Because I picked them. There you go. Uh, I'm just going to throw a vote at Toys in the Attic because, you know, it's pretty good, too. All right. With all that out of the way, let's throw it over to Steven Tyler. Here we go. And we come up with Simaria. We're going to permanent vacation. Kevin Brown, very, very happy right now. <laughs> Call my shots. <laughs> oh, we don't have that on this show yet, but yeah, out of six, I guess it's not that impressive, but sure, you called <laughs> your really. shot. Pat yourself on the back, my friend. You did a good job. All right, I'm, uh, I'm not upset at this at all. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we kind of heard uh, Kevin's reasoning for Simaria. Uh, Scott, you know this one. Tell us about uh, you know your love affair with Permanent Vacation, and uh, what do you think of this track? Just general terms, of course. You know, it's it's funny when uh, earlier I was just trying to think of why I bought this album because I don't think I had heard anything on it before I got it, and the only other one I had owned was was uh, Toys in the Attic. I think I was just looking for new music. I saw they had something out. I'm like, all right, fine. I'll buy an Aerosmith album. And, you know, I liked one. I'll probably like another. And I just happened to get, like, two of their most, uh, you know, popular ones. But this song has just got a great feel to it from beginning to end. It, the the groove to it is, is really solid. And it's one of those songs that as soon as it's over, I really debate whether I want to continue on to the next song on the album uh, or if I just want to rewind and hear that one again. Well, Simurai is nestled nicely right in between Ragdoll and Dude Looks Like a Lady. 
So we're between uh, two pretty big uh, hits for the band. Uh, this is a Tyler Perry Valance joint. So Jim Valance, uh, of course, a uh, songwriter for uh, Brian Adams, uh, amongst others, uh, had had a big hand in this record. He also worked on uh, Ragdoll and uh, Hangman Jury uh, from this record. So this is uh, his third collaboration with the band uh, from this record. Uh, what do you say, boys? Let's get right into it. This is Simariah from 1987's Permanent Vacation. I'm going to stop it before Scott gets a chance to. I love that bass line. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you knew it was coming. You know, it's funny. I was, I was on Twitter today. Mitch LaFon is a radio personality out of, uh, I believe he's out of Quebec. And he was talking about uh, this album in particular. Like He's really getting into Aerosmith again right now. And he, one of his points was Tom Hamilton, Jesus, seriously, one of the most underrated bass players in rock. And I got to yeah. agree with him. The, the guy's just fucking killer on everything. It's, yeah. it's kind of like, so, you know, one of the other podcasts I do, Corey, um, for the Queen, John Deacon's the same thing, right? And yep. I think it's Randy says this on the on that podcast quite a lot, is you, I don't think you notice Tom Hamilton for the same reason you don't notice John Deacon a lot of the time. It's just because he's just fucking laying it down constantly. Like, you know, so I, I talk to, because I coach youth soccer players, and sometimes, like, you'll get a player, you know, player of the game, is this player, that player, and usually it's a player who's really stood out as having a very good game where the really good players, actually, they're either a 7 or an 8 out of 10 every single game. So the line, the variance, is not that great. And it's the same thing with Tom Hamilton, John Deacon, these guys who are just solid all the time. They play exactly what the song needs all the time, and they're just, they just kill it. And I think, Scott, I mean, maybe you can comment on this as a, as a producer too. I think that Tom's also had the benefit, especially in these later albums, where he's had producers who know how to manage a bottom end. And they get that balance between Joyce kick drum and that bass line absolutely spot on. And they bring them up exactly where they need to be in the mix. So you can really hear them because that's not always the case on rock and roll, right? Yeah. And it's, it's especially challenging on an album like this where the kick drum is so huge. I mean, this really sounds like a 26 inch kick drum he's using <laughs> in the studio. And so when you're when you've got that big of a boom the even just the reverb of it can can overtake the bass so panning is very important you want to make sure that you've got them a little bit separated you know between one ear and the next uh frequency response obviously um but the bass sound that they got on this album hands down is one of the best bass sounds i've ever heard in my life agreed 26 inch kick drum you're really underestimating it it sounds like the uh, uh atomic bomb test in oppenheimer <laughs> you know here here in vegas we have uh, an atomic bar and that's where they used to sit and watch the atomic testing because they, oh, really? they could see it you know however many miles away from there out in the desert but uh yeah i wouldn't uh, i wouldn't have wanted to have been even that close to it it's crazy that isn't it you think about like you know they just didn't really know exactly what the range of the radiation was and what the, what the effects of that are going to be long term. So, yeah, people just oh, just put some glasses on, put some dark glasses on, you'll be fine. Well, I don't know if either of you have seen the movie, but the reason Christopher Nolan wanted to make it was when he found out that when they were actually, you know, doing the research on on this reaction and stuff, they realized there was a chance, albeit slim, that they could actually set fire to the entire atmosphere and destroy yeah. all life on Earth. Yeah. And they still pushed the button. And that's why Christopher <laughs> Nolan wanted to tell that story. Like, how do you get to that point where this could destroy literally all life on the planet? Let's do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not that important. I, I think, you know, uh, to where it needed to be done. Luckily, though, for those people, they were they were really drunk and they didn't feel 
the effects of the radiation right away. And that, that third arm came in really handy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it led to a great moment in the movie where, you know, Matt Damon's character is talking to Oppenheimer and he's like, and Oppenheimer says, oh, there's a, a near zero chance that we destroy all life on Earth. And Matt Damon goes, near zero? And Oppenheimer yeah. goes, well, yeah, what, what more do you want from theory alone? He said, well, zero. That would be nice. Like, <laughs> well, but, but then it, it kind of begs the question of how many other things has this happened with that we don't know about yet? Yeah, exactly. Oh, almost everything, right? I mean, that's <laughs> all, all the big discoveries. Are, well, because scientists, I mean, I work with scientists. I, my life is spent working with academics. They will never say, I guarantee, or I definitely this, or I, I know this. They'll never say, well... Yeah, we think. I mean, as far as we know, we're, we're pretty sure. And like, what, a non-committal? Well, we don't know. There's always that small chance that it might kill everyone on Earth. We don't know. Well, if you've ever seen the movie version of Stephen King's short story, The Mist, uh, that's what can happen. <laughs> Another good film. All right. Mm-hmm. That was a bit of a tangent. Let's get back to the song. Sorry, man. I, I was that. just rocking out. Yeah, I love that push. Dune, 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 dune. I love that push back yeah. into that next, that next part. It's so cool, man. Just everything about Musically, this song. This is, is fantastic. It's so good. Yeah, to sum up yeah. what we were trying to say earlier, the bass is great. <laughs> <laughs> but Steve, this is another one. I, and and you know, I'm going to say this on every song in this album. But Stephen is in top form absolutely top form on this his voice sounds so strong and clean um i I wish they were all like this you know what else is what i always find about this record too and especially this song he sings a lot the word straighter he's not doing as much he's not fucking around as much within his within his delivery which you know i mean when he does that it's great but on a song like this you want power and control and hitting those notes and sustaining them and when you hit those big high notes and you know you don't have to put vibrato on it's like well there you go that's the sign of a guy who yeah he can do all the histrionics and all the theatrics but also he's a really really good technical vocalist yeah where did billboard put him on their list of the top rock singers of all time like let's not talk about that list (laughs) let's not talk about it's gonna make me angry uh, again i'm getting i'm gonna guess that freddie mercury was first nope oh no really Okay, yep. hey, let's, should we tell him who was first ahead of yes, Freddie Mercury? Please. Yeah. Mick Jagger. Okay, so this was the Aerosmith. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I guess the, the bigger the mouth, the higher you go up on the, the scale. Is that what it is? Well, then no, because Steven Tyler was only, four, yeah, he was only 14th. <laughs> That's true. Wasn't it? Wow. It was uh, Mick Jagger. One wasn't Stevie Nicks, too. Stevie Nicks, too, wow. which, I, again, I mean, when you read the, all the great. caveats that they threw into it, it was a bunch of bullshit because they were talking about because yeah. they listed it as 100 best singers rock singers but then there's all the oh you know and we're taking into account songwriting and we're also they discounted people whose name was in the band name so like Tom Petty wouldn't have qualified because he was Tom Petty in the Heartbreakers which I wouldn't necessarily put Tom in that same school but yeah. Well, I, I actually I would, but for different reasons. But but I, it was a, it was such a bogus it was such a bogus list. Like it was. Well, but they always are, and that's the thing is that half of the time they just go by the popularity of the band and not the actual yeah. talent of the person. You see that in guitar players all the time. 
Um, I I think Mick Jagger's a good singer, but I think he's a very limited. I think he's very good oh. at what he does, but he yes. he's very. I can do this. Yes, and exactly. That's really it. But he's brilliant at that. But I would think you know you're looking for somebody who's got range and variation and you know things that that they've got a really wide scope of what they can do and can just kind of jump in and do anything. And I I wouldn't put Mick on that list. No. Well, you're describing David Lee Roth. Who was number 20 on that list, right? Yeah. Sammy Hagar wasn't in the top 50, but David Lee Roth was. Again, I mean, that's a whole thing, and there's an argument to be made there, but if we're talking singers, yeah, I don't know. (laughs) If you're talking frontmen, I get it. If you're talking singers, you can't make an argument in hell that David Lee Roth is better than Sammy Hagar. No, but 100%. I think that's the thing is they would have to define what is it that we're what's our criteria and then have to make everyone stand up to that criteria. So if yeah. they're going to say vocals and not frontman, I wouldn't think David Lee Roth would be in the top 50. But showmanship, he's got to be in the top 10. Yeah. 100%. Oh, yeah. Yep. So that's Aerosmith. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Steven Tyler at number 14, I was cool because if you're, you yeah. know, vocally, he's great. Lyrically, he's had his missteps, but I think he's pretty damn good. And he's a pretty iconic front man, too. So. I love that progression because it's those suspended, well, they're not suspended chords, they're full chords, but because they're playing them over that static route, they become suspended. And I love that trick that songwriters will use to get moving to the song really by kind of cheating in a way, right? It sounds like you're doing something cool, but really just playing A, E, G, whatever, but you're sticking on the A at the root. But it sounds really fucking cool. Yeah, it does. And the other thing I like about this is the guitar tone. The guitars sound really dark on the song and i think that really fits it, it allows you to carry notes like that and you can kind of bury that sound together um and allows you to to give you that feel if it was too uh tinny or too high end high you know like high eq you couldn't get away with that but i think that's bruce Fairburn, though right i mean as a producer for this type of music you're not going to get that many people who were more adept in this era mm. than he was yeah for sure. Really not. I, I hear a lot of people like crapping on Bruce Fairburn. He's one of my favorite producers because I, I grew up in this area, right? He produced Loverboy. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he did Slippery When Wet. He did Permanent Vacation. Yeah. Um, God, there's so many. Honeymoon Suite, the big prize. There's a great album I love. Uh, Loverboy, Wildside, New Jersey. He did Pump. He did uh, ACDC's The Razor's Edge, which is kind of their big comeback from like yeah. the, the abyss of their last few records. You know, they decided to work with a producer again. That producer was Bruce Fairbairn. Gave him one of their biggest hits of all time. He did Flesh and Blood from Poison. Uh, ACDC Live, which is one of the best live albums I think I've ever heard. Yeah. Uh, he did Aerosmith's Get a, Get a Grip. Uh, God, so many great fucking records, uh, except for Kiss Psycho Circus. That's That was his one misstep, <laughs> I think, uh, out of his whole discography. But a lot of people shit on Bruce Fairburn, but man, this sounds pretty fucking good to me. I don't know about you guys. Well, I mean, it, it, he's he's as far as I'm concerned, he's right up there with Mutt Lang. And if you think about Mutt's list of credits, um, it's it's pretty impressive. Uh, I, I don't understand why why the hate. I, I I don't get it unless it's just not their genre of music or what. But I think this album alone should put him in the history books, let alone all the other ones that you just mentioned, except for Kiss. But, you know, sometimes you got to experiment. You have to try things. Not everything's going to work. Um, you know, you go for it. And and I would have to wonder 
in the case of Kiss, because I know how how strong minded Gene Simmons is, how much of that was a contrast between Gene saying, this is how I want it to sound, make it yeah. that way versus Bruce actually coming in and going, here's what we're going to do. And I think he Bruce was very much uh, a Gene Lackey on that record. And uh, Paul Stanley, especially the other two didn't really matter. They weren't really in the band at that point. They contributed. They played on one song. Ace Freely and, and Peter Chris played on one fucking song on that record. But I, yeah. I think uh, uh, Bruce and Gene got really close and it was kind of Gene's vision of the record. And uh, I think Paul was a little pissed that he couldn't get more stuff on there. But um, kind of a misstep. Uh, I, I like Kiss, but uh, I'm not a big fan of that record. I know uh, Kevin is a big Kiss fan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One of the biggest. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm feeling overwhelmed with Kevin's emotion right there. I'd, I'd rather listen to two hedgehogs fucking. That's gonna... <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> no, well, that's I, coming I was, up on their I, next album. I was going to say, though, Scott, and, or both of you actually, do you wonder with Bruce Fairburn and Mutt Lang and those guys, I think sometimes it's the sort of the hipster, not hipster, but like the, the, the hip cool reaction to say, well, they suck because they did produce the, the New Jerseys and they did produce the pumps and they did produce these sort of glossy mainstream rock records that sort of defined the way that rock was going to sound for everyone because everyone copied them you know even the bands cinderella and motley Crue and fucking poison all those guys if they weren't being produced by those guys the people who were producing them were trying to copy them and make them sound that way so it sort of homogenized mainstream rock for about sort of five six seven years so i think that sometimes they get lumped into that where it's like well they were just doing their job really really well it's not their fault that people started copying them or people started using that as a template i don't think you know what that is because a lot of those other records were produced by his protege bob rock there you go (laughs) yeah and and i mean that happens with composers too i mean look at hans zimmer hans zimmer started the short string staccato and in uh, action movies and dramas and next thing you know everybody's following that template that's now defined action films and and that sort of thing i think that's the thing is when things are working and people are, are digging it, everybody wants to hurry up and be the next one to do that before it becomes trendy. And you've got, you know, a lot of big names that jump on that bandwagon. And it makes it look like the guys that started are just other guys that did it. Yeah. There you go. Bruce Fairbairn, gone too soon. A guy that Steven Tyler said uh, was responsible for helping relight the fire under Aerosmith. And by God, did he. That vocal man is just, like you said, Scott. You were talking about Scott. This is Tyler, just just peak. Like he just hammers that out. Like I, you try singing that, it's so fucking high, and he belts it, and it's just clean. And you know that sort of there's, that's not punched in throughout that take. That's one take, or it might be the second or third take, but that's one time through. And this is before auto tune, and this is before you're going to fix vocals. So to get a vocal that good, that high, man alive, I just love it. Yeah, this is recording to analog tape, not digital. Yeah. This is, you know, people right. having to uh, unbelievably be able to do their job. Uh, but, you know, and, and I like that little throwback he did to uh, to Round and Round from Toys in the Attic, which we haven't gotten to on the show yet. But it's it's almost like he knew what my other favorite album was. And he's like, I'm just going to I'm just going <laughs> to connect the dots for you, Scott. You know, uh, no, very, very uh, amazing vocal. Um, I, I think the song just has such a great flow and beat to it. 
um, it's the perfect tempo for this. Any faster would kill it, and any slower would would ruin it. What do you think of the lyrics, Corey? Because this one to me is always because Tyler does a good job of. He's in that sort of that same stable as David Lee Roth. We we talked about you know where he can write the really tongue in cheek. You know, double entendre. He can do triple entendre. Steve can really take that to the extreme, and he can write sort of more emotive, more sincere stuff. But this one's a lot more. It's one of those abstract songs where you don't really know exactly what he's talking about through most of this song. You know, and I, I do like that contrast. Ladies in black put a spell on me, uh, but then ladies in white ain't my cup of tea. So it's that sort of I prefer bad girls and good girls. But other than that, slice of the sky and a silver wedge. Higher and higher we go. What was he talking about? I don't know. And it doesn't really matter because the words just fit the rhythm of the song and the cadence and the melody. So it's just, I don't know. I think I'll, I guess another reason I picked this song is I love the lyrics, even though I have no idea what they mean. And, and lyrics are fantastic. But I, yeah, like you mentioned, Ladies in Black put a spell on me. He's not a fan of Ladies in White, but a, I had to look up what a Samaria was. And the definition is a word used to describe a person has a beautiful personality. So oh. you, you think more towards a lady in white, not so much a lady in black. So it's almost kind of the antithesis of what he's singing about here. But uh, anyways, a beautiful person, I guess we can kind of keep it to. So he's just, you know, Stephen Tyler loves the ladies. I'm not sure if you know that, Kev, uh, from your dealings <laughs> with, with the band. But, uh, you know, he, he's maybe not not, not quite as uh, down and dirty with it as a song like Love in an Elevator or, uh, or anything like that. Or You Ain't Seen Nothing Till You're Down on the Muffin. Uh, you know, he's he, a little more poetic in his prose here. He, he's channeling his inner Tony Banks, if he, if he will. <laughs> there we I, go. I, I don't know if that's I, a good thing or a bad thing from experience over the last few months. <laughs> well, considering what Corey said about uh, Tony Banks at the beginning of the show, I, I don't feel that it's necessarily a good thing. I thought a Simurai was a Girl Scout cookie. Is that what you call them in Vegas? Yeah. No, is they, that an American have, thing? I, I think it's, what, it, what is the one that, it's, is it a Samoa? Is that what it is? No, that's a Polynesian well, country, you lunatic. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's there's some Girl Scout cookie that, that sounds similar to that. It's like one word starts with an S and it has a really bizarre name. Uh, I, I've never actually looked at the lyrics to this. I probably sung along to them uh, yeah. unconsciously, but I've actually never even paid attention because I'm not a lyrics guy. Um, for the most part, I can just kind of, I, I just listen to the vocals as an instrument. Um, but uh, every once in a while, uh, well, especially with this show, I'm, I'm paying more attention to them. And yeah, I have no idea what he's talking about. Well, all I know, Scott, is that you're diabetic. Stay away from the girls' cow cookies. That's right. <laughs> Man, I tell you, he loves that shaker, don't he? Yeah, but it's great, though. I mean, this is what we're talking about with that production. All these things can be lost in a bad mix. You can hear the ride cymbal clear as a bell throughout this song, uh, this record, this song and this record. You can hear those shakers perfectly. They're panned over so that you can hear I mean, again, I think it, it, it sounds so slick that maybe that is where some hardcore purist rock and roll people say, oh, it's not, you know, it's not the fucking Stones. It's not, it's got no rough edges. Well, yeah, but when the band's on, and when you've got a singer who can sing and you've got a band who can play and you can capture lightning in a bottle and get it sounding this good, why wouldn't you? 
Yeah, exactly. I, I do like the, uh, I don't know if it's the sugar packet or if they, they bought an actual shaker for this one. But I, I think it was a shaker this time. It sounds like a shaker. It, yeah. it, it, did, it did have a little harder edge sound to it, but it's like one and two, three and four, one and two, three and four. And then it comes one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four and one and two, three and four. And it just kind of alternates back, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. A lot of bands, they, they just put the shaker on there and it's... And that's it. This has got some personality to it, which I think really it's not something that most people are going to notice unless they're a drummer or a musician. But it's something you definitely feel. It's also something that you get, I think, is unique to Aerosmith, where percussion and rhythm in Aerosmith is at that next level because you've got basically two drummers in the band. Right. You know, you've got Joey, who's the drummer, and then you've got Stephen Tyler, who is a drummer and also understands rhythm and percussion really, really well. So he's going to be able to make that call and say, well, let's go on the ones, let's go straight, straight time, but then let's break it up and syncopate it in this section just to give that little, even just, it's just eight bars, just give it a little bit of movement, so. Yeah, very good. Just to to go back to the vocal, like, this is Steven Tyler at the height of his power. Mm -hmm. Last week's uh, song, Kevin, was a a song called Jig Is Up from Rock in a Hard Place, which is a pretty decent tune, but Steven sounded like he was physically ill. Like he, he just he just wasn't singing in good voice. Uh, this is the exact opposite of that. Yeah, I, I decided that he was just laying in bed and they woke him up to sing the song and like, don't get up. We've got the mic ready. Just start singing. <laughs> well, he wasn't in good shape in that album um, at that no, period, no, no. right? I mean, that no. was the that's the album without Joe, without and, Joe, yeah. without Brad. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which, sorry, but to me, eh, it ain't Aerosmith. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, three fifths just doesn't quite cut it. Nah. Can I get some cold compresses? Because my face just got melted. <laughs> I'd written down in my notes too, because the, the first time I rolled the dice and came on the show, I'd written just sort of calls notes myself to remind myself. And I'd written down, um, hey, Joe, uh, hey, Slash, Joe Perry called. He wants his fucking everything back. Because you listen to that tone and the way he plays that, it's like, oh, yeah, I mean, Slash was a devotee of, we, we know that anyway, right? We know that. But yeah, you listen to this, it's like, his wow. first big record. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, I love the, uh, the, the the kind of bridge section of the solo was like directly from Young Lust, which would come on the next record, right? But I'm like, I'm going to sing to Young Lust. And then yeah. I had to remind myself it was Samaria. So that, that was kind of a cool little callback they do in Young Lust. Let's just reuse that part from the song that nobody remembers from Permanent Vacation and use it in, in this one. <laughs> Well, you know, when you get to to writing so many songs, a lot of times you don't remember every little thing you've written. If it's not one that they played live, because a lot of times I don't know if they did this in this particular case, but a lot of times they go in, they write the songs, they record them, and then they have to learn them to be able to play them on stage because they don't even know them well enough to go do that, even though they just recorded some brilliant masterpiece. Yeah. Um, In in this case, uh, I, I love the transition going into that whole part, coming out of that last chorus. I love everything about the tone, um, the the playing. I love that it was it was dialed back. It wasn't some crazy solo all over the fretboard kind of thing. Yeah. Very tasteful. 
I mean, I, this is just everybody in the band at the top of their game. And, and I have to say, again, I love the, the way the bass cut through on there, too. It didn't impede on the guitar at all, but it had a presence, uh, you know, that, that really stood out on its own and just blended so well together. This is one of the best mix albums I've ever heard. Well, m- m- and very importantly, too, Scott, there's no Stephen Tyler scatting over the top of the solo, right? Which, you know. Oh. Thank you. He had a little squeal in there, and there was a little something else, a spoken word thing I couldn't quite make out. He was there. He had to remind everybody. I'm, I'm still I, I on wonder, the song, people. I wonder if he really was there through the whole thing, and they just muted that shit. And they're just like, all right, let him, let him do his thing, and we'll fix it in post. We used to give my, my, my youngest daughter, when she was about, I don't know, three years old, and we, when we play rock band as a family, we'd just give her a guitar that wasn't plugged in. Just let her, just let her play along thinking she was playing along. It's probably the same with Stephen. We'll let him scat along. We just won't plug it in. <laughs> Oh, you're doing fantastic. Keep it up. Yeah, Good yeah. job. How's it sound, guys? Great, Steve. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Throw in a few lights. more howls. They love that. Yeah. yeah. The red light's not even on anymore. <laughs> Half the band's already out for lunch. Yeah. We didn't even talk about the fact there's a fucking key change in the verse of this song. You yeah. don't pick up because it just sounds like a chord progression, but it's not. It's a full key change. And there's key changes all over this where it moves around off the roots. Like, I don't know, we're, we're in a... Well, you know, D's in the pentatonic, but that's they've moved that now. So, again, subtle, but I think super, super cool. I, I would say it's a well-crafted song. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's almost something that, that was put together consciously to come up with those ideas because those aren't natural changes. You're absolutely right. Um, but they, they sound so damn good in this instance. And I, I have to wonder, like, I, I'm so tempted to maybe take those same changes and put them on something else and see if, if they work elsewhere or if this really was a, this song is just magic. Yeah. Well, pretty, three pretty good songwriters, Stephen Tyler, Joe Perry, and Jim Valance uh, from Chilliwack, British Columbia, which is uh, currently on fire. So uh, yeah. hopefully everybody in British Columbia is staying safe here. But, uh, you know, he was the uh, a drummer from a band called Prism. You guys ever hear of Prism? I've heard of Prism, yeah. Canadian rock band that actually uh, Bruce Fairburn produced a lot of stuff. But uh, uh, he wrote songs for Bonnie Ray, Carly Simon, Rod Stewart, Roger Daltrey, Tina Turner, Alice Cooper, Ozzy Osbourne, Europe, Kiss, uh, the Scorpions, and Murray and Joe Cocker. The Scorpions and Anne Murray. I wonder if <laughs> On the like, same he day. writes a song and he's like, who should I give it to? Who's gonna, I got to flip a coin. <laughs> Anne, now, I've, got I, this, I don't... I've got this song. It's about bloodletting in the 18th. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I've got the wrong. I meant to send this to the Scorpions. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't want to sound naive. I, I don't want to assume that this is the case, but I'll, I'll ask because I'm curious. Is that where the band Chilliwack came from? Yes. I, I liked them. I, I wish they had been a bigger uh, success because I only knew of, I think, two songs by them. And that was it. And then I what's she going to do when I'm again. gone? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Love that track. That's what we're doing. Season two, Ultimate Catalog Clash. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> Chilliwack. <laughs> Chilliwack. Why not? They're one album. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tiebreaker.
you know, I always considered this song as having much better verses than chorus, but then I listened to the chorus a little more analytically here tonight. And it's like, I love how they, they, you know, they, they take it down a peg. It sounds pretty exotic, like Climb Caravan from Spinal Tap. And then, <laughs> then they kick it in double time again, and it becomes a rock tune again. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's really, really cool how they pull that off. I think that is that Jim Balance kind of impact, impact influence. I, you know, that's where, if because you, if you listen to the early Aerosmith records, you didn't really have those same dynamic changes or tempo not to the same degree right but when they started working with these guys who were that's what their bailiwick was that's when they really took off and that's when the, the arrangements of the songs really exploded and you get songs like this where we're, we're picking up on you've got the you know three guys in a podcast talking about how cool this song is and structure wise so and i think that's i, I think i suspect that's jim balance and that's exactly Fairburn, why you why you go in and bring in outside writers and, and you bring in a, a different producer because yeah. you want somebody who's going to take your basic ideas and go, okay, I'm standing outside of the song. I don't have the investment in it that you do because I didn't create it, but here's what we need to do to make it next level or the level after that. We're going to do a key change here. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And, and it takes a strong producer to come into a band like, you know, that's, that's so established like Aerosmith was and say, uh, you guys are going to do what I tell you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's that's not a, a being a producer is a really tough job. You have to make tough decisions. You have to really have a vision and you have to be able to stand your ground. Do you think some of that, Corey, I mean, you know more about sort of the history of the band than certainly myself or Scott does. Were Aerosmith sort of on their last, were they in the last chance saloon at this point? Because Done With Mirrors had kind of tanked. Maybe this was a case of, well, you're working with Bruce Fairburn and you will do, uh, so you, you know, you will do as he says. Maybe they were just told sort of you know, work closely with this guy. We're going to bring in Jim Valance. I don't even know how that collaboration happened, but we're going to bring in this guy to sort of help you with polish these some of these things up. Maybe it was a bit of the 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 label saying, "Well, if this one tanks, you're on your own, and we're going to drop you." So play nice. Maybe that was that sh- cold, uh, short, sharp shock that Aerosmith needed. Who knows? I don't know. You're 100% correct, actually. It was Don Kolodner with Geffen credited with uh, bringing in Bruce Fairburn and uh, making them write with outside writers because Steven Tyler and Joe Perry didn't want to do that. They're they're the Toxic Twins. They wrote Toys in the Attic. They wrote Rocks, right? But it was John Kolodner who said, no, work with outside people. Work with Bruce Fairburn. Work with Jim Valance. uh, Desmond Child, I, I think. Well, actually, he, Desmond Child does have a couple of tracks on her. He did Angel. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did yeah. Heart's Done Time and Dude Looks Like a Lady. So, yeah. uh, so, you know, real heavyweights actually in songwriting. Desmond Child has written thousands oh, of hits. God, and yeah. I mean, Jim Valance as well. So, um, you know, you can really kind of put that on John Kolodner, who was really kind of credited with um, as long as well as their manager, Tim Collins, who got the band clean. It was him along with Kalodner. He's the big bearded guy you see on The Simpsons uh, who's yeah. kind of sitting with the band. He's in the odd video. That's John Kalodner from Geffen. But yeah, uh, Done With Mirrors didn't do much. So the band did have uh, much of a leg to stand on when it came to standing up to Geffen. This is the second album they did with Geffen. And it was like, no, let's do it this way because these guys make hits and these guys make good records. Yeah. And you, you want to be the next Bon Jovi. Like you want to resurrect your career. This is what you got to do. And it 1,000% worked for him because Dude Looks Like a Lady was a big hit, Angel was a big hit, Ragdoll was a hit. Uh, you know, that album sold, you know, three, four million copies, whatever it was, and then led to Pump, led to Get a Grip and their whole resurgence. So very perceptive, Mr. Brown. It was actually the, the label pushing him to work with uh, Bruce Fairburn and outside songwriters. And I don't know what their um, initial contract was with Geffen, but if most likely Geffen probably signed them to a three-album deal and said, okay, we're going to do three with you. But when the first one tanks, uh, Geffen's not going to even be thinking about keeping the contract for three. 
unless they can really spruce up number two. So they're going to throw everything they can at it. And they're the ones that are fronting the album. They're, it's coming out of their pocket, not Aerosmith. So they're the ones that have the say-so, and, and they can come in and go, uh, here's your producer, and you're going to do what he says. Otherwise, we're not doing this album either. But it was kind of a gamble for Geffen, because they were coming off Rock and Hard Place, which did nothing, right? Like, they just got the band back together. Uh, so there was a little bit of a rub there. But it wasn't until uh, uh, they had the big hit with Run DMC. And the re- redo of uh, Walk This Way, which came out the year before, that, that really kind of lit him on fire. But they were already working on permanent vacation at the time. So uh, Geffen was, you know, really kind of taking a gamble at this point, signing him after, uh, uh, and especially after uh, Done With Mirrors, uh, did not do well at all. I don't even think that hit platinum, actually. That only had like one kind of medium kind of song that everybody kind of knows. It's one of my favorite songs of all time, but uh, certainly was not a big hit for the band. There's so a good we- chance there was a, a number of contingencies, something like if you're, you know, we're we're going to take a month and send you all to rehab if this doesn't, you know, if yeah. you're not at this level by this date, because you're talking millions of dollars and Geffen's oh, yeah. not, I mean, they were a pretty smart record company. They weren't interested in throwing away a lot of money, taking chances on people. So they must have said, Hey, we like you guys. We see the potential. We believe that you can do it, but here's how it's going to work. Which is crazy. See, when you think of it, this is Aerosmith. I mean, by that point, they were known as like of America's band. Like they were the, you know, the the bad boys from Boston and the Toxic Twins. They they were not an unknown entity. They were this. What is this? Their eighth album, Corey? Eighth, ninth? What? Uh, uh, Permanent Vacation is ninth. Ninth, yeah. So yeah. this is a band that's got a career, and they've had a lot of, well, I wouldn't say a lot of huge radio hits, but they've toured. You know, they're they're a pretty bankable tour entity. So. To, it shows you how much sway and how much power the the label does have, right? And like you said, Scott, I mean, I mean this feeds back maybe into with the conversation we were having about producers is and, and why people don't like that kind of production aesthetic is his Geffen were sort of like they were the, the you know rock and rolls Nashville where we want everyone to sound roughly within these parameters because we know that that sells and all we're interested really in is making music we're not interested in moving the needle on music in any way we just want to shift units so we need to get all these things lined up so I always find the commercial side of that how it impacts on the artistic side really interesting now I think you know with Permanent Vacation Pump they got away with it because they got the right band at the right time who were in the the right place to sort of be amenable to it and it worked and of course you've still got Steven Tyler writing great lyrics and you've still got Joe Perry's the, and the musicians are still the same but I think it was just that weird confluence of timing and opportunity and everything else but it doesn't always work right and I think a lot of bands do go under because the, the label says well you've got one chance it didn't work fuck you you're out where yeah. you know given another five years maybe this band would be the next Aerosmith who knows yeah, and, and, uh, and certainly Geffen uh, was was not a stranger to that because if you look at uh, you know White Snake going from slided into 1987 would be another perfect example of that yeah. massive change in sound, that huge sound that we started hearing around the you know in, in rock around the late 80s and uh, yeah I, I would put them in that in a very similar situation not not with the drugs so much but as far as where the band was at and what Geffen said here's what we're going to do and we're yeah. going to change everything. Well, they tried a big-time producer with Done With Mirrors. Uh, do you guys know who produced that record? I don't. I don't. Ted Templeman. Oh. Who produced wow. Van Halen's first six records. I'm surprised it didn't... Uh, well, what well, what was it, though? Was it the album itself, or was it where the band was at, or what do you think was the issue I there? I think it's the quality of the songs, I think. Honestly, it's one of those where you go back. It's the same as, you know, we talked to Corey on you know, your, your other podcast about Van Halen 3. 
nothing about Van Halen 3 is Gary Sharon's fault. I very much, I don't think that anything I'm done with Maurice was Ten Templeman's fault. It's, if you don't have good clay to work with, you're not going to be able to mold a good statue, right? That's just a, it's as simple as that. Yeah, no, I uh, I did find a quote from Ted Templeman about that record. It, it's not a great sounding record, and Ted Templeman would actually be the first to agree. Uh, he said uh, they didn't want them to be in L.A. or San Francisco. Uh, they wanted them to do the record in Berkeley because they didn't want those guys to score drugs. Uh, he said, I wasn't familiar with the board. As a producer, if you know your room and the mic preamps, you know how things are going to sound. I don't think I made Joey's drums sound as good as they could or Joe's guitar. So even Ted kind of says, yeah. you know what? I wasn't familiar with the equipment. Uh, we're recording in Berkeley, so the guys couldn't get high. And, you know, it didn't come together like he wanted. But he had a lot of fun making it, which is, you know, Ted Dublin's a great producer. Yeah, and, and famously, there are no drugs in Berkeley, you know. Exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> no snakes in Ireland, apparently, for some reason. Why, why do you think Scott doesn't go to Berkeley? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, because I'm all uh, hookers and blow up here. <laughs> Damn right, baby. In my head, Canada, I'd like to think that that just goes on for about 45 minutes. Oh, fuck yeah, and I'd love to hear all of it. (laughs) (laughs) This this is honestly, this is one of those songs that I I hate that it fades out because it's one of the ones in in my top list of songs I wish I could chase. You know, I wish I could follow the band wherever they went and and hear what, what other magic we didn't get. But I just love that. You know, that repetitive staccato note that we heard there, uh, just that, you know, it, it just yeah. th- that's such great playing. It's playing for the song and not showing off. Here's what I can do. It's let me do something that makes the song even better. It's Joe Perry doing what Joe Perry does better than most blues rock guitarists, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, when he, he sits, it's kind of a pocket solo, right, really? And he gets that, yeah. but it's too, it, it is still slightly, just sloppy enough to be bluesy because it hits that one bend where he doesn't quite get up to the note and he just leaves it just that fraction off the note. But that's rock and roll, man. That's it rock should and roll. all be clean. Absolutely. So, you know, yeah. Just, yeah, just super, super cool. And again, you get the feeling that's, you know, well, it's not written. It's an, it's an improvised solo. Sounds great. Oh, here we go. I can hear the music. Fuck you. You can hear the music? You know what that means. It's time to play. How many times has Aerosmith performed Simariah? We're going to start with uh, Poppin' Fresh himself, Scott Haskin, (laughs) unfortunately doing the show tonight reverse topless uh, to the disappointment of all on the call. Scott, how many times have Aerosmith performed Simariah? Well, we have cold rain here right now. Um, I'm going to say they've never done it. Oh, that's a big fat zero for Scott Haskin. Kevin Brown, are you going to go for $1 just to try and outdo him? Or? I mean, I'm game theory says I should just go for one, right? That's <laughs> yeah. really what I should do, but I won't do that because this is the, we play the game, right? You want to win both showcases. I, I think that, well, I'd call my shot. Like, if I get two out of two, yes. I, I think I'm going to try and guess roughly what I think. So I, I think they would have played this on the permanent vacation tour. I suspect it would have been one of the rotated songs, maybe on the pump tour. I think probably after that it got dropped out. So I'll say about 
46. 45. Not right. 45. Let's say 45. Okay. 45 from Kevin Durant. So we got uh, zero from Scott, 45 from Kev. Now, before you reveal the answer, Corey, whatever number it is, it's a shame they didn't do it more because this would yeah. be an incredible stage song. You could take that ending and you could just go on for five or six more minutes and just make it a great jam. And this would be a killer stage song. You, you could open or close with this one, too. That's yeah. how good the song is, right? Like, you could open mm-hmm. the show with this, with the pyro. You could close it and just keep that fucking foot solo going on and the big rock ending. Man, it would work. You don't even need to do any other songs. Just do <laughs> this one. <laughs> and what a perfect perfect song to do during a Las Vegas residency, which they've done a few of now. Yes. You know, great deep cut that's going to sound great. Fairweather fans are going to like it because it sounds good. Diehards are going to love it. But Kevin Brown, when it comes to your guests, I got to say... Kevin Brown, you and Edward, the correct answer is two. What the fuck? Are you kidding me? Aerosmith performed this song twice. Wow. How could they not see the magic in it, you know? That is insane to me. October 16th, Broome County Veteran Memorials Arena in Birmingham, New York, and October 20th, Maple Leaf Gardens, Toronto, Ontario. What, this tour? Yeah, this would have been uh, 87, so yeah, permanent vacation, yep. How do you, how did they not find magic in this one to keep doing it? I don't get I, that. Yeah, that blows me away. Absolutely blows me away. I even loved where they put it in the set. It was right after Draw the Line and right before Walking the Dog. What? Is it is uh yeah. are either of those available for for listening? No, I don't believe so. If somebody out there has a bootleg of either of those shows, I'd love to hear Simurai alive. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Yeah, just go to Corey's house and, and oh. bring him a copy. Yeah. Please. <laughs> Can I send? Oh, you I, I, can I send you links through here? Where's Con- I, I found a YouTube clip actually. Ah, yeah. You guys want to watch that? Let's try it. I loved it. So this would have been the uh, Maple Leaf Garden show in Toronto. Okay. No kidding. <laughs> this is before cell phones, Scott. <laughs> yeah, the band listens to our show right? they must like you're going on the peace out tour fucking break out Simaria. okay like, oh the my god only thing i can think of and i and i would have this is a stretch okay but the only thing i can think of is that it was too much on steven to sing that along with the other songs like it was you just think? too much wear on them maybe that's the only yeah. reason i can think of that they wouldn't have found that song worth doing live more than twice the only other thing I was thinking, Scott, is maybe it's just one of those where there was something that happened during the recording where one of the band really didn't like that song or just really had a f- 
just a shit time recording it and was pissed mm. off about it and held a grudge and said, you know, there's some kind of veto thing where saying, well, no, everyone gets one veto. I'm not doing Samaria. <laughs> so yeah, and, and I don't know what the what the democracy in the band is as far as that goes, but that's that's also <laughs> democracy <very> too. <laughs> it's Steven Tyler, Joe Steven Perry, and Joe. Yeah, <laughs> is it right. those two? Like they're, they, what they say goes, and that's kind of yeah. If you watch the Amy special, uh, you got a move that they recorded during the Honkin' on Bobo tour. They show some behind the scenes stuff, and they showed uh, the the member of the production crew who has to go around and get the set list approved. And it's always between Joe and Steven. They'll, they'll take it to Brad. Brad, what do you think? That's ah, fine. Tom, yeah, we're good. Whatever. <laughs> let, let, let's rock. I'm ready to go. It's always Joe like, oh, I don't want to do that one tonight. And Steven's like, why are we doing that one? It was great the other night. Let's do that one. And it's them two that are always deciding on set list. The other three don't give a fuck. They just want to play. <laughs> They're just right, happy yeah. to be there. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, the, it, it, the sound quality wasn't even that bad on that video. If the video was, though, I, mean, I was like watching Aerosmith perform in the middle of the Blair Witch Project. But... <laughs> well, remember camcorders back in that time? It was probably this big honking 40-pound oh, camera yeah. on his shoulder. Like, trust me, that's not easy to handhold. Believe me. Oh, no, I'm sure it's not, but uh, hard to watch. <laughs> a little bit, yep. Yeah. All right, gentlemen, we got a piece of business we've got to take care of here tonight, and that's does Simariah belong on our ultimate Aerosmith mixtape? Let's recap the songs we have on side A. All the deep cuts. It's, it is in danger of becoming a permanent vacation. Uh, just permanent vacation. Just <laughs> People want to know, how do you define Aerosmith? Just listen to this one cassette. Permanent vacation. You're good to go. We got a yeah. few tracks from that album on here. We have Heart's Done Time, Moving Out, No More, No More, Girl Keeps Coming Apart, Bone to Bone, Coney Island Whitefish Boy, The Farm, I'm Down, Rats in the Cellar, and Combination. Kevin, your track from the first time you were on in show 40-whatever, still yeah. here. Now, are we going to put another Kevin Brown selection on there? Let's start with Kevin. What do you think? That's a hell of a side. That's a hell of a side of a mixtape. It really is. Um, if I'm taking one song off there, and I, I probably would, like if I'm building my ultimate Aerosmith playlist and I've got sort of finite spots, I don't think no more no more makes it it's a good song i don't think it's as close i don't think it's as good as simariah and i don't think it's as good as a few other songs that you're going to be uh, covering coming up as well so i don't think that one's going to last anyway so that's the one that i would replace um with simariah scott haskin what do you think interesting choice um that's actually one of my favorite tracks off of permanent vacation just just that opening line i mean blood stains the ivories on my daddy's baby grand that's such a <laughs> visual thing you know most of steven's lyrics i don't want to visualize um <laughs> yeah i i would have to go with probably uh moving out would be my choice um, I, but but I, I don't really want to replace I don't want to put another permanent vacation song in here because we I almost feel like we should disqualify permanent vacation because we could just put the whole album on there. You know, <laughs> it's it's one of those things where where it's like the whole thing is so good. We could just make the entire show that and then not give so many other tracks that are really good and, and really well-rounded a chance. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't disagree with you, Kevin, that it might be a better song, but I, I don't know that I want another. I, I know I'm getting all political now, but I, I don't think that we need another song in the mixtape from this album. What if it replaced a permanent vacation song? Because I always go back to I'm Down, which is a great Beatles cover, but it's yeah. not even their best Beatles cover. Like that, that mm -hmm. one is still coming up, uh, if you ask me. Uh, they've actually done a few Beatles covers. We already uh, kicked one off, yeah. I believe. But um, um, I, I would be cool with maybe replacing I'm Down with Simariah. I could I go with that. that. I mean, I think, honestly, I'm Down is, again, it's a song, I love the song generally, but I think the Beatles version 
it is better. I don't well, know a lot of Aerosmith fans would agree, just, but that's the danger of doing Beatles covers. Is it's, yeah. unless you do something really <laughs> amazing with it, like the the song "Help," for example. It's this really, it's, it's crying for help, but it's this really upbeat, happy little tune, and John, never, John Lennon never liked it. And then Deep Purple comes along, and on their first album, they do this really gut-wrenching, slow, emotional version, yeah. which John Lennon said, that's what I wanted the song to be in the first place. So yeah. unless you're really going to do something like that, that just hits a, a different mark, it's going to be hard to, to beat a Beatles song. So I, I'm with you on that, Corey. I would do that. I could go for that, too. Jeez, sounds like we're all in agreement. Simariah. Gonna go on the mixtape, take it off. I'm down. Wow, this mixtape is just changing almost every week. I know, right? This is something we get rid of John, and all of a sudden we're just changing the mixtape left, right, and center. <laughs> yeah, well, and so, it's funny too because I, I said a long time ago, like I don't, I don't know how anything beats what we have, and yet everything's beating what we had. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, there's there's three songs on there that I would fight tooth and nail to keep on there pretty much till the end i think yeah that's on both sides or just one on this on the side a i think side yeah your, your side b your all-time top nine is i think is one because you've still got a lot of really fucking good songs coming up that's going to yeah. be that's going to make that side even more of a problem but i think this deep cut side like yeah combination samurai bone to bone for me are just they're top 10 aerosmith for me I, I for different reasons i just think they're both they're all three insanely good songs and good luck trying to decide how you're going to manage this boys because i don't know we still got so far to go and <laughs> yeah like and you, th you think about the songs that are coming up and it's like i don't know i don't know how we're going to do this because yeah there, there's a like i, I could rats in the cellar i'm going to fight for hearts than time uh, i'm going to fight for yeah no more no more uh, kevin almost tried to fuck, kick it off that, that's one of my favorites from toys in the attic so yeah i'd fight for that one so and don't even get me started on the all-time top nine on side b because let the music and chip away are my two favorite aerosmith songs and i know i'm gonna have me, to lose at least one away that blows me away that let me let the music do the talking is one of your favorite top, like, that just Love it. it's insane to me it's a good song but man it doesn't yeah i don't know well, I'm, I'm just going to tip my hat on where I'm at on the, the mixtape. Uh, everything except for three songs is either dark green or light green, which are, are my absolutes and really close. Uh, <laughs> the, three that, uh, the three that are orange are moving out rats in the cellar and let the music do the talk. <laughs> so it's it's going to be interesting as we go forward. But, uh, you know, I mean, that's where I was in that moment that I heard them when we reviewed them. I might go back and listen to those tonight and go, you know what? This is a better song than I remember it being. Yeah. Or I'm I'm just finding something in it I didn't hear before and I, and I might like it better. And, and I really do, to be fair, I really do, do need to do that uh, because most of these I've only heard when we recorded the show. Mm-hmm. And the other problem you've got, I think, though, is that with not, you've only got nine on each side. There's, like, if you're building a... Because I think what you're trying to do, right, is be sort of representative of Aerosmith. And if you're going to try to sway someone and say, this is the band as a whole and sort of representative. Well, there's two or three songs that are just locks. I mean, to me, Dream On, Sweet Emotion, Walk This Way. Like, you can't leave any of those off, really, because those are... They define Aerosmith. Especially yeah. in that sort of that early period, and then you could. I mean, loving an elevator is going to be difficult. Or Janie, I know you don't love Janie, Scott, but Janie's gone these, already. Well, Janie, oh, oh, so it's gone and it's dusted. Yeah, okay. yeah. it's dusted. I, it's I warmed up to it, and then we got rid of it. 
Um, but, but you but, know what I mean? You're talking about those of, definitive songs. Yeah. But that's why I didn't want Permanent Vacation to, to cover yeah. the whole thing either, because if we're talking more well-rounded, we might say this song is better than that song, but are we really doing the, the overall band, the history of the band, yeah. justice by having one album dominate it when there's so many other songs that would show how well-rounded they are? And I, I think ultimately we're going to have less permanent vacation on there. Like we still haven't covered a lot of rocks or, yeah. or toys. We're, we're going to get mm-hmm. some more tracks from those, I think, on there mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, so that that's really going to make things interesting. Yeah, we've uh, got a long you, way to go yet. I, I'm really glad, though, that we got rid of the live stuff and we can yeah. just focus on <laughs> on the stuff that, you know, is, is more consistent and more thought out than just spontaneous. Well, and, and as a fan and as a listener listening to it, it's like oh man they're gonna do 16 different versions of jenny's got a gun that's, that's gonna be a tough listen that's, i'm i'm gonna listen to it because i love the show and i love the boys but oh my god i, I, I was just glad there was another version of that song yeah i, I was yeah. just glad there was no live versions of sheila that we were gonna have to <laughs> endure uh but looking back on our list it was actually episode 49 uh kevin when you were on last time and, and uh combination came on which was uh shortly Shortly after I joined the show, I joined on episode 40. So uh, yeah. I hadn't, I, I was still pretty green on the show. Um, and now I, uh, now I have opinions. <laughs> well, and Kevin, you, you can maybe help us out with something because we were discussing how are we going to break a tie? Because we're going to get to a situation where just Scott and I, and we're going to mm-hmm. get to a song. Let's say it's let the music do the talking. And I really want to keep it on for the time being. And Scott really wants to punt it. How do we break the tie? It's like, oh, maybe we got to get someone like Kev on a call and he could like yeah, be a judge. Probably we have to present our case. Yeah. I think you probably should call me and I will be, I'll be Judge Judy. And just impartial? Yeah. Like you, you got to let your own personal bias go. Go with the best argument. Okay. I'm in. Are you capable of that or do I have to call Randy? Uh, <laughs> you call the Cardinal? You're going to get, I mean, you know what he's going to say. You know what he's going to say. He's going to tell you. me to go fuck myself and I'm okay with that. <laughs> that's what he should do. That would be uh, a lot of fun. Because, yeah, I think I can be objective about that. I think it, it is difficult. I mean, I've got, yeah, my, you know, like I said, Born to Born to me is top 10 Aerosmith. I know it's not for everyone else, and I know it really probably isn't. Um, but I've got an attached with that song. But if, you know, Scott comes in and says, this is why the movie did, uh, needs to come back onto the dice and replace it, and he presents the best argument, you know. And the thing is, you line yourself up for trouble here, Corey, because, of course, Mr. Haskin has uh, written books about uh, legal proceedings and has got the inside track on how you present a good argument to a, a judge and a jury. So you, you might be, you know, you might be hoist by your own petard here. But I tell you what, I, I learned uh, at the feet of one John Mariano. And so I know how just to change just, the rules. <laughs> just, just just belittle and bewilder as much as possible until I break the person down where they just say, fine, fuck, I don't care anymore. Just let me go. Yeah. And, and that's how I plan on winning. Wow. I was really hoping that we would come up with a solution that I could use on your other show. <laughs> I didn't have to come up with anything. But since we're going to call Kevin, that doesn't really work. <laughs> you know, it could, uh, it, could be, it could be a slot, right? It could be a new feature. Better call Kevin. There you go. There you go. It's a TV yeah. show, right? Better call I, someone. Better call Saul. Yeah. I kind of want to start having fights now just so that we have to keep roping <laughs> Kevin into there the you podcast. Go. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's, it is tough because it's it's not just a matter of what song you think is better than another song. It's in that moment what song you yeah. think is better than another song. You might wake up tomorrow and go, you know what? I I don't think that was the right thing. Or you might wake up and go, yeah, I'm definitely glad we we did that. I mean, it's it's like you could ask me what my favorite album is or my favorite song, and, and you could ask me 10 minutes later, and it could be something completely different. Um, it will never be Anne Murray, but, <laughs> you know. Yet. 
Yeah, yeah I, we'll see what happens when I get to be 80. Um, but, but that's the challenge of it is, is it's, it's all in that moment and what means yeah. something to you in the moment. And that's what's one of the beautiful things about music is I can not like a song today and I can absolutely love it tomorrow. Well, let me, I, I want to pitch an idea to, you, to both of you. And this is, you know, we can do this on air or you can cut this out, Corey, but you've got your 100th episode coming up fairly quickly. That's going to come on you guys quicker than you think. It's only, you know, four or five months or whatever it is away. I think what you should do is you should put together your ultimate set list from the songs you've done so far. And then you guys come up with, so make it a, I don't know, like a 16 song play, a, a set list with three for the encore. And then I'll come on and I'll you can you can pitch me what you think should be on the pl- on the set list, and I'll adjudicate, and we can see if the format works. I like that mm. idea. I like that. That's idea. interesting. I, I, can, can we go back to like uh, early '90s Aerosmith, where they did like 24 songs a show instead of 16? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's your podcast. You decide the number. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can you can decide how many how much drugs they have going on to onto the stage, and you know what, what they leave on the mic stand and and all of that. Um, yeah, that's a good idea. I like that. I like that concept. It's it's just it's such a fascinating thing these shows that we do because they really they are so subjective and they're so in the moment. And I, I mean, I even found with with the Uriah Heat podcast where I, I mean I went through all of their songs and it was a matter of yes, this song is good or no, I don't really like it that much. And then I would go back and some of them I would listen to again and go, yeah, you know what? It's a better song than it was when I. Yeah, heard it broken up with me commenting on, you know, little things here because we're also not hearing the song from start to finish. We're breaking it up with commentary. So if it's a first listen, which most of these are for me, I'm not getting that full experience. I'm listening for so many different things and not just kicking back and taking the song in as it is. I'm listening to what is the bass doing? What are the drums doing? Will Steven shut up? And it's not like I'm I'm listening as a fan for the first yeah. time. I'm listening to to give commentary. That's right, Kevin. Well, if we do this on show 100, um, we'll have to set up like a, a Spotify uh, playlist of our songs in order, and you should listen to them all the way through, so you get the full experience. Right, yeah. like how do the songs flow into each other, all I mean, that kind of stuff. Perfect. Show 100. I like it. Let's do it. That's a good idea. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah. You want to just produce the show? Like, fuck, I can take off. Like, I've done seventy. I've done seventy-eight of these now. I'm good. Like, and here comes no, New Corey's no, 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 no. Uh, live set podcast, where we take a band every week and we just do. Ooh, I like that idea. Can I fit in one more? Can I make it an even five? I think I've said this to you before, Corey. The only thing I don't enjoy about guesting on other people's podcasts is I don't really get them to just sit and listen to that episode. So it's yeah. an episode of one of my favorite yeah. shows that I have to miss because I don't want to listen to myself talk. You know, I don't <laughs> listen to him by inane ramblings over and over and over again. So, but for hundredth, I think it would be that would be something different. It would be a bit of it would be a fun. Well, I, I show seventy eight, so we got a little bit yeah. to go. But yeah, yeah, it got it got me thinking now. Hmm, what that's, would that's my an interesting be? concept? Yeah. That, but I, I agree with you, Kevin. When I guest or I, uh, you know, if I'm in the like the Patreon, listen to the live stream while it's being recorded. Uh, yeah, when that podcast comes out, which is part of my weekly schedule, then it's all of a sudden like, oh, cool, this is oh yeah. 
that episode. on that one. <laughs> yeah. And they split it into two episodes. <laughs> you know, uh, so yeah, I, I, I definitely, and that's the importance of what we do though, is because we do become a part of people's schedules with, with the, the magicians podcast. People told me so many times, like I listen to you on my morning commute or my, my route yeah. home or when I'm walking the dog or when I'm out for my morning jog or whatever. And it's like, you really do become a part of people's routine in their lives doing shows like this. And uh, that's, that's one of the things I love about it. It's a huge privilege. Yeah, it's a mm -hmm. huge privilege. Uh, speaking of episodes and shows, let's uh, put a bow on this one here, boys. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Brown, let's let the folks know what other shows uh, you do and what you got coming up. Uh, yeah, I got, um, well, the two other shows we talked about, the Tom Petty Project. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook. Just put in Tom Petty Project, you will find me. Um, and on Queen Seaside. Uh, on Twitter and uh, Seaside Pod Review on Facebook for the Seaside Pod Review. And I've got a couple of good shows coming up. I've got a couple of interviews. One with a, a musician from, uh, I want to say, North Dakota, who does a lot of Tom Petty covers. And then I've been contacted by a couple of Tom Petty tribute bands, one from uh, Montana and a big one down in Cali in San Francisco, um, Petty Theft, who was sort of one of the, you know, premier. And they hey can we come on the show I'm like of course and you guys know anytime anyone says can we come on your show the answer is always yes you can come on the yes. show absolutely <laughs> so those are going to be fun um, enjoy talking to people about music this is why I love doing these podcasts and, and talking to you boys so yeah if you're interested in Queen or Tom Petty or Genesis with me and Corey come check out other podcasts there you go and Scott Haskin maybe let the folks know what you got coming up and tell them all about the Deep Dive Podcast Network well, I'll start with the Deep Dive Podcast Network, because that's more interesting to me than I am, because I already know what I'm doing. Uh, of course, you know, we've got this show. Corey, you do another show with uh, our old friend John Mariano, Backtrack's theme music. You do another show with our friend Mark Kamire, and the podcast will rock all things Van Halen. Uh, we already talked about the show you do with Kevin, The Ultimate Catalog Clash. Look at that one up. It's got really vibrant uh, logo, too, that you guys did for that. It's very easy to spot uh, when you're, Kevin when you're did searching. It, yep. Yeah, great job on that, Kevin. Who? Uh, great job on that, Kevin, now that you got your headphones on. Uh, <laughs> and have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, Kevin, of course, has the Tom Petty Project. He also has a show with Randy, Seaside Pod Review. I have Uriah Heap, The Magician's Podcast. Nate and John have The Deep Purple Podcast. The Simple Man has Skinnered Reconsidered. Terry T-Bone Mathley has T-Bone Prime Cuts on the other side. Rye has Sabbath Bloody Podcast. Paul, Joe, and David have In the Lap of the Pods. We have Andy and Matt at Hawk Binge. We have John and uh, Jonathan and Eric at Maiden A to Z. Daniel and Josh at Diary of the Mad Men, the ultimate Aussie podcast. I always have to say that a little gruff because it just sounds better. <laughs> we have Ben and Sam over at the Universally Speaking Podcast, the Red Hot Chili Pepper Show. We have George and Hattie at the Judas Priest Cast, Clay and Ryan at North by South Podcast, Greg and Jonathan at So Far So Pod, So What? Quinn at N Volume for All, Nick, Sav, Steve, and Mark over at the Rock Roulette Podcast, and of course, Chaz and Greg at Regarding Lulu. And of course, we can't forget our friends Sean Geek and Fast Fred, Eric at Booked on Rock, and Ken Knapsack at Pop Rock and Radio. If you go to the uh, to my website, scotthaskin.com, click on the Aerosmith link. Uh, it has the link to his app that you can download and listen to his show. And to answer your other question, Corey, I am still in a debacle moving the Haskincast podcast to a new distributor. That has been a nightmare, but we're getting there and the new shows will be on back-to-back -back episodes with my buddy Corey Morissette reviewing an album I had never heard in my life. And you put me through the ringer on that one. And then uh, more episodes to come. Kevin will be on the show before too much longer. And of course, uh, my books and music, everything that I do can be found at scotthaskin.com. 
There you have it. Thank you very much for that, boys. Um, I don't usually plug stuff at the end of the show, but I'm going to plug a couple of Van Halen shows we got coming up. First of all, our live show, if you're listening to this before August 26th, which you won't be because it doesn't drop till then, so I'm going to cut that part out. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to promote a couple of things. I don't usually promote a couple of things at the end of the show, but I got a couple of special Van Halen shows coming up with, uh, with some authors. Um, a, couple of, a guy by the name of Scott Davis reached out. He wrote a book called Pictures Alive, the 80s Rock Photo Book. A lot of great pictures of uh, all your 80s favorites in there, including Van Halen. Uh, they'll be on the show uh, early in September. We also are going to have author Steve Rosen on the Van Halen show. He wrote one of the best Van Halen books out there called Tone Chaser, uh, his 26-year friendship with Eddie Van Halen. Eddie actually had authorized him to write the authorized Eddie Van Halen biography. And for one reason or other, it kind of fell by the wayside. Then after Eddie passed, he kind of revisited all the tapes, uh, all the interviews he did, all the late night phone calls, Eddie Van Halen, oh, and then wow. uh, wrote this book after the fact. It's really phenomenal reading. Uh, Steve Rosen is going to be on the show uh, end of September to talk about his book, uh, Tone Chaser. So please check those out. Uh, and as always, uh, you can find us here, uh, Backtrack Aerosmith Revisited. Uh, we're on Twitter. Uh, we're not on Facebook because uh, uh, Scott is old and doesn't know how Facebook works. But maybe someday, <laughs> maybe someday he'll get that MySpace page up and working. But until next time, on behalf of Scott Haskin and the illustrious Kevin Brown, my name is Corey Morse. Thank you very much for listening. And as always, let's give Stephen Tyler the last word. So